Amen. Well, good evening. Hey, Scotty. Thank you. I'm pleased that you and I are here. Uh, Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We are um, not going to cover a whole lot of ground in terms of passages that we will be considering this evening, but we are, at least I intend us to take a deep dive into the passages that we are going to consider. And so my hope tonight is not to say anything that's revolutionary and certainly not to say anything new because that would be bad. My hope is to look at some simple truths and ground us in these simple truths as we think through these things and think about the world around us. So a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, When we have the phrase sexual ethics on the screen, I will use as a synonym sexual morality and biblical sexuality. Those are really all going to be the same thing. So if you're like, this is supposed to be about sexual ethics, it is. Calm down. I'm just using different terms. It's just going to happen on the fly. But a caveat that I think is really important for us as we begin this discussion is this. Almost none of this conversation is dependent upon being a religious person of any sort, and in particular, a Christian. Now, the reason I say this is because I want us to see that what the Bible says about sexuality isn't grounded in a person's faith, though there will be a lot drawn from this as a person of faith. Biblical sexuality is drawn from God's design for His creation. And so, That's important because what that means is that this conversation we're having tonight is not reliant or only true for people of faith, i.e. Christians. This is true. These words are true. God's design is true for all of His creation, and we'll unpack that just a little bit. And so as we look at all of these things, and as we think about these things as thoughtful Christians, what I want us to take care not to do is reduce this whole conversation to what is wrong. And instead, I want us to be asking the question, what is God's intent? So if we're always looking for things to be able to call out as, well, that's bad, that's horrible, that's wrong, and not thinking, well, it is so because this is what God intends for this. I think that's going to be really important as we think through these things. So turn to Genesis chapter 1. And for the first part of this, uh, God's design for human sexuality, we'll be looking at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I will read these in full since they're so short, and then I will reference them as we go through. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Okay, so God's design for human sexuality, point number one, the origin of sexuality. So here in verses 26 and 27, we see the word image and the word likeness being used. And what these things do is they show relationship. So these are relational terms of a creator and his creation. We are going to create these things in our image and in our likeness. And so what that means is that our being as humans is determined by and also expresses God's design. So whenever you look around this room right now, what you're seeing is not just men and women, not just people, not just Christians. You are, in fact, seeing God's design. We are seeing, in a sense, the image and likeness of the God who created us as we look around. And so our very being, our very existence is dependent upon the relationship of creator and created. Now, when we think about sexuality, what that means, and when I use the word sexuality, even though I think it is horribly wrong, that means really two things in our modern world. Identity, so your sexual identity, and the Bible's very clear that there are two of those, male and female, but we have to function in the world we live in. We, we have to understand what's being said and what's meant. So when we say sexuality, we mean identity, and then what has always existed, activity. So what this means image and likeness in terms of our sexuality 
is that our sexuality is not defined by our self-realized sexual desires. It's actually established by God's design. And so when you think of something as simple as sexuality, whether it's identity or activity, these things are grounded in, once again, the relationship of creator and created. If you're like, man, this is so simple, good. I really hope that's what's happening. So this means the created order informs and binds our understanding of sexuality. So everything that we claim to believe about sexuality is informed and bound by, and I'm going to make the case, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Now, we'll have some questions that we ask. Okay, well, what about this? What about this? We'll get there, but that's where we are as we begin at the outset. So, point number two, the purpose of sexuality, Genesis 1, 28. And Jesus, or excuse me, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So now we see, not only are we created in the image of God and in His likeness as sexual beings, male and female, we're now given a purpose. There is an intended outcome for sexuality. So God didn't just say, you know what would be really fun? To create a boy and a girl. That's that's not what happened. There, There is an intent that God has behind doing this thing. It is purposeful. And what we see is that This enables the man and the woman to fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply. So it's really important to note that when God says, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth, that's not a suggestion, that's a a command to them. And so in their maleness and femaleness, God is enabling enabling them to obey the command that He has just given them. So this intended outcome is God's purpose for sexuality. So that means our sexuality is the way in which God continues to bring forth life. I know that that may sound super simple, like, duh, we know where babies come from. But it's actually much more important than just knowing where babies come from. What this means is that as God created on the sixth day and rested on the seventh, He has given men and women to be co-creators, right? You do realize that God could have said, you know what would be really fun in the garden? Three boys and three girls. But that's not what happened. He gave two with the purpose of making more. Well, God definitely had the ability to make as many humans as He possibly wanted. If He wanted six billion, six billion. But two is what He gave. That's really important because that means that this purpose for man and woman to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is something that he actually intends to happen, and only by this means, right? Only by this means will this thing happen. Will you fulfill this command? So something that is super important to see is that while Jesus' incarnation certainly is miraculous, it's, it's a divine um, birth or conception, and then, well, even birth too. I mean, he came from the Holy Spirit, from God the Father, through Mary. All the whole thing is supernatural, right? So, when we say this is necessary for that, I don't mean, okay, well, you know, Mary and Joseph had to come together because they didn't. But what is important to know things in the Bible, like the end of Ruth, where it says, Naomi and Boaz came together, and they had Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, right? So you see this purpose of being fruitful, serving God's larger purpose of even redemption. It's through this purpose of sexuality that actually God even intends to save His people. Jesus is miraculous, but guess who isn't miraculous? Mary or Joseph. They have a mommy and a daddy. And so this makes our sexual identity and activity crucial to accomplishing God's purpose. So identity and activity is crucial to serving God's purpose of sexuality. Point number three, the goodness of sexuality. So here, let's read um, Genesis 2, 18 through 25. 
here, Moses says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast in the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So the goodness of sexuality, here we have Genesis chapter 2, verses 18. God is saying, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So what I want us to see is that Genesis, first off, Genesis chapter 2 is really an exposition in this regard of man and woman being created of Genesis chapter 1. The reason that's important is because in Genesis chapter 1, you actually have six days of creation, and then at the very end, you have God saying, this is really good. But in this exposition, we actually see there's a moment where God says, wait, this is not good yet. There's something that's that's not good, which means there's something that's wrong. There's something bad with what has happened so far. This, this is not a completed thing. There is something missing in this moment of creation. And so, what God sees as bad is Adam's aloneness. Now, how does God solve this problem? Well, He says that Adam needs a helper to help him, but not just a helper to help him, a helper that is fit to help him. So what I want us to realize, and something we have to kind of like get out of our minds, is that to fit together does not refer to our feelings. Like, man, look at that couple. They just fit so well. Okay, that is important. I I mean, as a pastor, all the time, we can look at scenarios or talk to young couples and we're like, I don't think it's a good idea, right? Like, and, and you're just kind of seeing what's happening. So that is important, but that's not what's happening here in the act of creation. So we're not talking about feelings. We can only limit ourselves to the context that we're actually in. So we can't bring in our modern understanding of what it means to fit together into something that doesn't have that intention. What that means is that fit refers back to the purpose. He doesn't have someone in this moment to help him, to fit him, to complement or correspond to him in order for him to obey my command. What is the command? To be fruitful and multiply, and to fill the earth, and subdue it. He needs someone, and not just anyone, to help him do that. He needs somebody that will fit him. Now, there's a lot of, well, we'll get into it. That's fine. It's, we'll talk about it in a second. So, the idea here is that Adam is being given one who will join him and help him to fulfill God's command, and that in Genesis 1.31 is what God deems as really good. So what is bad? Not that Adam is simply alone, but there's no one fit to help him obey the command of God. What is really good? The woman being given to fit as a helper in order to do that thing. That's why the purpose is so important as we look at Genesis 1 and 2. Right? This is not just about winning an argument. It's not just about Christians having this account that we think is right. There is logic and reason to this whole thing. And the good thing is, is we who are logical and reasonable Christians can look around the world and say, this is verifiably true. Nobody can deny that this is true. Why? Because it takes a mommy and a daddy to make a baby. And for more and more people to come into the world, it takes those people coming together. 
Look, look at Asian countries. They're, they're suffering, well, really a, a, a tragedy, but also a disaster in that they don't even have enough people to continue into the future. We, we know this is true because it's the way in which the world logically works. But it's also a lot of sense when you just look at the Bible. Number four, the guidelines of sexuality, Genesis 2, 24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is so very important, and I will make the case for why that is in just a moment. But what we need to understand is that God's purpose and intent for his creation can only be nullified, that is canceled, or modified, that is changed, by him. So, what God has designed, what He has commanded, what He has put in motion in terms of not only the being of man and woman, but their sexuality as well, it can only be readdressed by the one who created this thing. Again, creator-created relationship. And so what we end up seeing is that nowhere in all of the Bible do we see God's design for sexuality being changed. I'm going to ask some hypothetical questions in just a moment if you're like, yeah, but I've already asked the question and I'm going to answer it too. So, this means the only proper expression of sexuality is between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. But Tyler, didn't the fall change all of that? You know what? Thank you so much for asking. Actually, if anyone was actually really going to ask, it would have been Scotty anyway. So thank you, Scotty. <laughs> what about unmarried folks having children? Right? You have a man and a woman coming together and making a baby. Or what about a loving relationship between two same-sex partners? We live in 2022. We don't live in the time of creation. Well, that's, that's not true anyways. We do live in the time of creation because we are it. So I think all of these things are valid questions, and I think that every single one of us need to be prepared to receive these questions and not become angry or get all crazy or start thumping Bibles, but to have actual, good, biblical, simple answers as to why these things are addressed by God's Word and why they make sense. So, let's see what Jesus says, because Jesus never says anything about any of these things. Right? Matthew 19, 4 and 5. Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, here, Jesus, He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So what does Jesus do? Now, actually, let me explain a little context. The Pharisees have just come to Jesus, and they are, as they always do, trying to entrap him. And so they bring up the, the idea of divorce. So Jesus is addressing their questions about divorce. And here's what he does. Well, number one, he points them back to God's design. Haven't you heard God created them male and female? So what immediately does Jesus do as he starts fielding these questions about marriage? He goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Jesus, the Lord, the God-man, the one who has all answers and could say anything to convince these people says, wait, haven't you read Genesis 1 and 2? That's a good starting point. But then he says the phrase again, become one flesh. This now means two things. We now have our first undeniable exposition of what one flesh means outside of procreation. So certainly we know from Genesis that procreation means coming together and being fruitful. That means having sex. Okay? But Jesus is now also saying that oneness of the flesh is the covenant of marriage. So you have a physical coming together, and then you have a covenant of coming together. Why do we know that? Because he's talking about divorce. So Jesus has just said, if you want to understand sexuality, you got to go to Genesis 1 and 2, because 
That points to the creator-created dynamic. And by the way, God was also intending for marriage. So we don't get to see it, but there was some sort of like awesome divine wedding in the Garden of Eden. Now, I don't like maybe it was like, hey, welcome. (laughs) You are now husband and wife. I don't know what it was like. Maybe there was a little ceremony and they rode in on lions. I don't know. That'd be sweet. We have no idea. But all we do know is that the God-man Jesus says it's, yes, one fleshness procreation, but also one fleshness marriage. So what does that do to all of these questions that we just asked? You have to be married. You have to be able to make babies. And those are the only two ways in which this is allowed to happen in my creation. This is by design. All right, and then fifth, the goal of sexuality, Genesis 1.28. So we're going to go back to Genesis 1.28, the goal of sexuality. Here it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So as I've said multiple times, the purpose of sexuality is procreation and pleasure. Well, actually, I don't know if I've said that yet. I just did procreation, but then also pleasure. The reason we know that's true is because if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks to the church there and tells them, don't withhold the conjugal rights of your spouse from them. That is, when, when they want to have sex reasonably, you should do that thing. Why do I say that sex is also for pleasure? Because what Paul can't mean is anytime your spouse wants to have a baby, you should do that. We'd be, you know Crosspoint would have 1,400 children if that's what Paul meant? I, and I'm not, I'm not saying that that's not technically a part of the intention, but it can't be that anytime your spouse wants to have a baby, don't withhold that from them. No, I, I think much more simplistic, he's saying anytime your spouse wants to have sex, if there is not a good reason not to, you should have sex. That goes for the man and the woman. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, do not withhold this from your spouse because guess what? Your body ain't your own. That's what Paul says. So the purpose is procreation, subduing and filling the earth, but then there's also this bonus factor of of pleasure between a husband and a wife. But those are the purposes. There does have to be an end goal for this thing. So what is that end goal? Well, that's obviously and always and forever will be God's glory. Now, there won't be marriage or sex in heaven but forever this thing that existed in time and space will be for the glory of God. All right, this is not just about us and our happiness and love. This thing is for God's glory. And so what that means is that this is for His being pleased by our expression of sexuality according to His design. So the goal of sexuality The goal of a man and woman being married and coming together is a part of the way that we please God by living out His design. We're doing the thing that He created us for and has called us to. You want to know what that's called? Obedience. And so we see here in Genesis 1.28 that God, God blesses it. He said, He blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply. Well, blessing means to to commend or approve. This is the good thing. This is what you are are meant to do. I, I bless this union and this practice in this union. Blessed by God. So now I want to speak to singleness for just a quick moment, and I'm not going to try to convince anyone that you need to be married or you need to be single, but Understanding the blessedness of God's intention for man and woman and sex, that's actually why singleness and abstaining from sex can also be commended by Paul. Do you know why? Because a single person who abstains from sex is making the statement that there is only one faithful way to do this thing, and if I can't do that, then I will do this. Right? So even singleness and abstaining from sex speaks to God's good design in giving man and woman and sex. 
I, that's, that's pretty cool. So all of the single people around us are actually an endorsement of God's good design. It, it's another proof that this must be true or you would never buy into that thing. Who in the world, literally, not like, you know, like a catchphrase, literally who in the world is walking around and being like, you know what, I am um, an evolutionary hedonist and uh, I'm never having sex. No one. No one's doing that. That's not a real thing. That person does not exist for more than 30 days. And yet we have churches filled with faithful children of God who are living their life, their entire life, never having sex. Why? Because God's design is real and true. And if you can't do that, then it's only logical that you will do this. All right, so uh, maybe, well, probably all of us know, um, but some of you watched it live. But in January of 1986, the space shuttle Challenger lifted off for its final flight, and 73 seconds into that flight, it broke apart and all seven crew members died. Now, do you know why that happened? It's, it's because in January, it was a particularly cold day, and there was a particular part of the Challenger, namely an O-ring, and when you think of an O-ring, you're like, it's that big, but this is a spaceship, so maybe it's the size of this room. I have no idea. But either way, in comparison to the space shuttle Challenger, the O-ring is really insignificant. And yet, they realized that it was that very thing that failed that caused seven people to die. Now, why do I say that? I say that because there were people who said, namely some engineers, who said, we told them that it was too cold for this launch and that something like this could happen. Well, what could happen? A lot of things, but one of those things is that this weather would, in fact, cause those O-rings to fail. Why do I say this story? Because intent and purpose is really, really important. If we go outside the intent or purpose of something, anything, even an O-ring, what we end up doing is opening ourselves up to consequences and potential disaster. So when we look at Genesis 1 and 2 and God's purpose and His intention for His creation, and in particular tonight, their sexuality, if we go outside of that, we too open ourselves up for potential disaster and definitely consequences, one of which may be eternal. So understanding all of these things, and again, this is not by far an exhaustive list or an exhaustive dive into Genesis 1 and 2, but understanding these basic things is really important to avoiding disaster. So the second thing, from God's good design of sexuality to porneia. Porneia is a Greek word. I am not at all trying to convince you that I am a Greek scholar because I'm not. But it's really helpful to see the word porn in porneia, because porneia is translated in the New Testament, and you can go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians 5. It's translated as sexual immorality. But sexual immorality doesn't really pack a whole lot of punch, but porn does. Even now to our secular society, and I'm going to ex- want to talk about this in a moment at the end, but even now there are, there are folks who are religious by no means, but see the dangers of pornography not only to the user, but to people who are being taken out of sex trafficking or sex slavery and being forced to do porn. And so I want us to understand that what has happened after Genesis 3 is that we have gone from God's good design of sexuality to porneia, like to, to a really bad place. And, and we're facing a really bad thing. This is not just sexual immorality, it's sexual immorality. So, two things I want us to see here is, number one, the church's posture towards sexual immorality, 
and number two, the believer's posture towards sexual immorality. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And again, there's a lot of things or a lot of places and lists we could have gone to, but I am teaching in 1 Corinthians in the youth group, and this is so fresh on my mind. And actually, uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of 1 Corinthians is a really great place to deep dive if you want to understand God's intention for sexuality. So you should go home and you should do that at some point in your life. But 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, right? That's porneia. And of a kind that is not tolerated, even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. So, two observations here. Number one, sexual immorality is not something that the church can tolerate or ignore. So this is not just uh, someone coming into the church and they're like, man, did you hear about this new visitor's background? This is crazy. This is apparently, and you can see how, how upset Paul is with this, by saying, it's actually reported. Like, I can't believe I have heard this. What Paul is saying is that you, you have allowed someone into the fold. You have allowed someone maybe in even to membership, but certainly you have convinced someone that they are a part of your family, and yet they are living in sexual immorality. The church cannot tolerate this. You, you can't have this amongst you. And if, and if he's not allowed to do it, guess what? None of you are either. But the second observation is maybe even more important than that. The seriousness of the immorality isn't being confined, confined to the type of immorality. So Paul is not saying, hey, this is crazy that this situation is happening. Couldn't you just be like this guy that's struggling with sexual immorality? Sometimes what we end up doing, and even as I came to this with fresh eyes, I, I mean, I've read 1 Corinthians as many times as you have. But whenever I was studying this to preach, I was like, oh yeah, here we go. Here's the, here's the section about the guy that's sleeping with his mother-in-law. Well, that is really bad, and not even the pagans are cool with that. But the point is not to be like, oh man, this is the worst kind of sexual immorality. Paul's not saying that. What, what he's saying is the mourning, that is the sadness, the sorrow that you're to have as a church is not simply because this man is with his mother-in-law. It's because he is going against God's design. Right? He, he's, he's not doing and obeying what God has called him to do. He's going outside of these parameters. So it's not just the type that makes it awful. It's the very fact that it's happening. So the thing that's bad is simply this, porneia. That's, that's the brunt of his argument here. And the reason we know this is true is because defining something as immoral, right, sexual immorality, is only possible by knowing what is moral. Something can't be immoral if you don't have a moral and so we know he's not just talking about this particular type of sexual immorality. He's talking about the whole thing. So porneia, while it is sexual immorality, I think it's really best understood as unfaithfulness to what is definably good. So sexual immorality is any time we are unfaithful to what is definably good. Well, what is the only thing in terms of sexuality that has ever been called really good? That's right. I can see it. You haven't said it out loud, but I see it on your faces, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And everything was really good. What's really good? The animals are good. The stars are good. The ocean's good. The man is good. And what I've called them to do is good. So porneia, sexual immorality, is any time that we are unfaithful to what is good. That's, that's the thrust of his argument. And so immorality is simply the anti-good. Sexuality, sexual immorality is the anti-good. 
And then number two, and we'll move a little faster here. So the believer's posture towards sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. Here Paul says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And he's talking to believers there. This is not everyone. This is believers. Your bodies are members of Christ. So uh, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So three observations from here very quickly. The rationale of satisfying the stomach's appetite with food should not be the way that we think about our sexual appetite. Why is that important? And why is what Paul was saying to this church in Corinth so very important to us? Because here's how you don't deal with your sexuality. If I desire it, or if I want it, or if I'm hungry for it, then I can do it or have it. That's what Paul is saying. The way you think about your stomach, which is right, is not the way you should think about your sexuality, your body. You don't live this way based on desire or want or wish. That's not the way you fulfill your sexuality. That's observation number one. Observation number two, he says, our bodies, believers, are vessels for what God, or for what, for doing what pleases God. So he says, we are, as believers, in Christ. And what he's really referring to is the entire church as Christ's bride. You have been united to Christ. He purchased you. He bought you. God the Father has given you to him, and he will return for you. And you're going to have a wedding feast. You can't live a sexually immoral life because you are Christ's bride. Now, certainly there's faithfulness to your spouse, but Paul's main point here is first and foremost, you as a believer are are Jesus's. But here's the thing we also know. Sexual immorality is going to be one of the things whereby people are judged in the end. So sexual, sexual immorality is not just, okay, well, you know, believers, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that stuff. That's, that's, that's everyone, all of his creation. Because of Genesis 1 and 2, sexual immorality is for no one. Everyone should abstain from that because your body, your being, your person has been created in the image and likeness of God. That means you are a vessel for His glory. And when you live this way, you pervert His glory. You you live the anti-good. You go against His design. And then number three, and this is really important, sex is never, ever disconnected from the intent of one flesh. Not in Jesus' mind, not in Paul's mind, and certainly not in God's design. Sex is never, ever disconnected from the idea of becoming one flesh. So much so that Paul says here, hey, if you're having sex with prostitutes, don't you realize you're becoming one flesh with them? Now, that doesn't mean because you've had sex you're now married, but it means you have together shared something that will never go away. Now, for For those of us who have come from sexually broken backgrounds, you know that. There is redemption and hope and peace in Jesus Christ, but that stuff never actually goes away in your mind, even though you are settled before a holy, perfect God. Sex is never disconnected from oneness of flesh. And so Paul's conclusion here in verse 18 is flee from sexual immorality. What he means is God's design is the only faithful expression of sexuality. God's design is the only faithful expression of your sexuality. Only within those confines can you actually, number one, have your identity, male and female, but then your activity. It's a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage coming together and being fruitful or for pleasure. And then number three, and this will be pretty, pretty fast here, and I'll open it up for just a few questions. 
So expressive individualism and human sexuality. So if you missed last week, I would, number one, encourage you to go back and listen to that, but I am going to let Carl Truman catch us up in one sentence. What is expressive individualism? Well, a man named Carl Truman, a really great theologian, says this, and he's talking about this thing called the modern self. So our, our, our current understanding of me, right? Not us, me, of, of myself, my existence. He says the modern self is one where authenticity, that is like trueness, is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings. So everything you do, everything, every, every way in which you function stems from how you feel inside. So there are technically no externals around you that dictate what you will and will not do, right? So we're thinking about sexuality. So here's, here's what I will say about what he just said. What he's saying is that the truest faithful expression of self is an unapologetic indulging of one's own feelings. And I'm going to call this thing sovereignty and total autonomy. You are sovereign and you are completely in control of you and no one, including God, is in control of you. Now, as we think about sexuality in particular, I want to show you where this has led us. This thought process of expressive individualism in terms of our sexuality, where has it brought us? I created this list in maybe seven minutes, which is really, really sad. But here is just a few of a lot of the, of the things that have happened because of this. Sex for pleasure outside of marriage, multiple sex partners, a demand for pornography that generates an estimated $97 billion in revenue worldwide. Worldwide last year, Netflix generated $24 billion in revenue. It has led us to arguing for and justifying masturbation. It has led us to contraception and reproductive technologies that have been classified as completely amoral. That is, there is no good or bad in this. You just do what you need to do when you want to do it in terms of contraception or um, reproductive technologies. Now, that's not a blanket statement on those, but as a whole society, that's where we are. The normalization of living together as an unmarried couple, and of course, if you're doing that, you can convince no one that you're not having sex. Abortion as a solution to the nagging problem of unplanned pregnancy. No-fault divorce based on things like a lack of passion. Prostitution now approved of as sex work, and I will give the caveat, even though it still is prostitution, I want to hold out for a category of people who have been trafficked and forced into this type of work. I just want to say that. Homosexuality and gay marriage, transgenderism and bathroom and locker room policies where your identity allows you to go into a place where you are not biologically meant to go. Sex reassignment surgeries for adults, but eventually, and it is coming for children. And then finally, the last thing I thought of is the labeling and banning of biblical counseling to minors as harmful conversion therapy. That's a list that I created in maybe seven minutes of where, of where expressive individualism, that is where our feelings have led us in our modern day. Now, you can think, and I hope you're thinking of all the other ways, because those should really be on our mind a lot. Because here's where we are today, but what I will say is we haven't reached the finish line of sexual expressive individualism. We're, we're by no means at the end of this. I think in a lot of ways we're, we've, we've seen the beginning, right? I mean, in the last hundred years, but, but even in the last 15 so what we need to be ready for is a culture that eventually approves of or at least can't stand against because you've gone so far all forms of sexual autonomy. The one I want to bring up to you because I think it's really the most relevant is something like definably legal forms of pedophilia. I mean, I'm not trying to be like the person who's on the, the far right and like I've got my podcast and two people listen and then I get 800 shares one day and the next thing you know, I'm famous. And I'm constantly dogging the church and dogging. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when you think of 
a person's feelings or inner self being the driving force of these things, naturally there's going to have to be a way in which we allow for someone, whether it's a child being attracted and desiring an adult or an adult being attracted and desiring a child. How do we not end up there? So what are we supposed to do before we open up for a few questions? What's the answer? I've never given such a subpar answer in my life, but this is, I think, what it is. We stand firm on God's design of sexuality. We teach it in our churches, and we teach it to our children. Friends, I'm the youth pastor at this church, and these things are already, like, in the minds of our children and, and confusing them. Now, I'm not saying you go home tonight to your two-year-old and, you're, and you say, do, do you want to know how expressive individualism affects your sexuality? And they're like, banana, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> but I am saying when you look at your five-year-old or your six or your seven or your nine or your 13 or your 14 or your 17-year-old, you need to realize that these things need to be a part of your conversation in an appropriate way. Now, what does that mean for a two-year-old? It means reading the book of Genesis, being in God's Word and soaking it up. God's Word is powerful and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Reading these accounts of God's design for His creation is powerful, not because our kids can understand, but because God's Word never returns void. You pray, you read, and you talk. And as your kid becomes six or seven, you maybe start talking about the way in which God designed people and he created them male and female, and we're going to go to this picnic or this barbecue and there's going to be someone and that person's going to be holding hands with someone that looks just like them. And we want to love that person. We want to be kind to that person. But we don't believe that. Not because we're Christians, mainly, but because that's not the way God designed things. That's what we do. And then finally, we point all peoples, including ourselves, to the hope found only in the gospel. It's the only place that we or anyone else will ever eventually find peace in the midst of the chaos of this world and all of the craziness that revolves around human sexuality. All right, so if you have any questions, we've got a couple of microphones. Um, let's limit it to... Uh, Three minutes. <laughs> if you have a question, you can ask it. We will limit it to two questions, though, or one, depending on how long the question is. Danny? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question to limit this to one total question. So, um, no, uh, actually, it's honestly a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty simple answer and a really difficult thing to arrive at. The reason I say that is because any couple that's actually, like any good, faithful, believing couple that's considering these things, they're going to have a lot of turmoil as they think about these things. I say that because I had a couple in my office just last month and they were coming talking about reproductive technologies. Now, there's a way in which you can do these things that is completely sinful and, and really shameful. But there's also a really thoughtful and really expensive way that you can do these things and totally honor the Lord. That's why I said when I came to contraception and reproductive technologies that this is not a blanket statement. What I'm saying is we have moved into a cultural realm that it's completely amoral. Now, the good thing about Christians thinking about these things is they're thinking about them in terms of biblical morality. So what can I or can I not do? So with reproductive technologies, we're thinking of things like, okay, if I'm doing IVF, am I fertilizing a bunch of eggs and then we are freezing them and somehow they're just there and then they become what we call snowflake babies? Or are we fertilizing and implanting only the eggs which we are willing to? to see come to, um, unfortunately, in, in a lot of cases, either a miscarriage or a baby. 
that way I think is faithful, but it's really expensive. And the couple I talked to said, that's what we're willing to do. Now, with contraception, you also have to be thoughtful and say, okay, well, this is not, this is not, uh, not just about, for a Christian, I think, saying no to God. Here's a really helpful thing for you. You may be able to say no to God, but your, your no can't control Him. Do you know how many people have gotten pregnant on the pill? You're never actually going to close the womb on God with a pill. It, it, it's, not, it's not really possible in my understanding of God's sovereignty. What you can do is you can find yourself living in perpetual sin because unbeknownst to you, the pill you're on is an abortifacient. And, and you're having unknown abortions because you haven't thought through all of these things. And so the, the easy answer is you have to be thoughtful, you have to seek counsel, you have to seek wisdom from your doctor. Hopefully they're a believing doctor, but you have to do a lot of research. And in the end, you have to be willing to say, I will either or either not do or not do these things based on what is going to keep me faithful to the Lord. And that is a great place to end. I'm going to pray. It is 731, and that is our time. So I'm going to pray. If you want to hang out and talk, that would be highly encouraged. And if you have questions, come ask Brad. He's up here. He'll answer anything that you want, and I'll be running that way. So let's pray, and, um, and then you can fellowship. Father God, thank you so much for this evening. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word and just the desire of these people and, and even myself to come and consider these things. Well, Father, I pray that you would use this to bear fruit in our life as we live and interact in this world in which you have placed us. Father, whether we like it or not, this is the culture in which we live. And, and these are the times in which we, we function. And so I pray that you would help us to be, Lord, bold and yet winsome, truthful, and yet gracious, not only as we think about these things, but as we share these truths with an unbelieving world around us. Lord, would you use this teaching to undergird us in, in, in being faithful witnesses in your world. And I pray that you would bless us and that you would be honored and glorified because of it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.